Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mega Talks TV. I am Lee. I am here. I am joined by Spencer. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, we've made it. We're here. It is season two of The Mandalorian. You have been holding back on watching. I had to keep my reaction authentic, and man, that was hard with how much both you and the internet has been going insane about season two. As of the recording, we're recording this on November 18th. As of this recording, we are three episodes into The Mandalorian. We, we being just everybody, right? Like Disney has released three episodes. But we are now going to review episode one. If we keep on our current streak of doing two a week, I think we'll catch up by about episode five or six. Sounds like a good time to me. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that. So let's get into um, season two, episode one. But before we do that, Spencer, anything you want to plug for Mangum Reads, our sister podcast? Uh, we are continuing through the forward collection of short stories right now in Mangum Reads, which is always a delight for us. We love to do short stories just because it gives us a lot of time to unpack a complete tale in a single episode rather than to return back. We're most of the way through it. We're going to finish this up and then do a recap. And then we're also going to start back into Harry Potter again. Uh, going into what is going to be Sarah's favorite book of the series, which I will also be reading for the first time in hardcover uh, rather than on a Kindle, which will be, make for a much more, it's weird, weird to describe it, but authentically nostalgic experience is something I never had nostalgia about, but it's part of the reason I'm enjoying Harry Potter so much. Yeah, I enjoy that. That's pottering around. So that's actually a different, I know you don't know the technicalities of this stuff, Spencer. This is this is all beneath you, but that, that's actually a different podcast feed. So that would be pottering around. You're, um, you're asking the talent to understand how the editing editing distribution process works, uh, sir. How insulting. Uh, yeah, but I do enjoy it. And check out, um, I'm on Mangum Reads. For those that haven't checked out that episode, I made my triumphant return to Mangum Reads to review a short story by Stephen King called The Mist. It was a lot of fun. I didn't talk that much, but I got to say, I feel like where I did talk added some value. You know, we've established this before, man. Both the episodes you appeared on Mangum Reads, some of the best material we've ever released on that particular channel. we got to get you back more. <laughs> it would require me to read more. Uh, okay, let's no, jump into No, it, it doesn't. You read the Wikipedia page the first time you appeared. <laughs> That's true. I, I don't really play. Yeah, I just tell you guys I'm going to read it and then don't. Uh, all right, let's jump into season two, episode one of The Mandalorian. Uh, this is titled The Marshal. We will start with our recap, and then I will award best line of the episode. I alone am emperor best line of the episode, and then Spencer will dig into a nostalgic moment of the episode. We are back in Tatooine, so there's a lot of meat on that bone, Spencer. And it's going to be great in that regard. I mean, in ways I legitimately was surprised to see. I think... We'll, we'll debate it when we get there, but I think we got to see things in the Star Wars universe on screen that we've never before seen, just heard vaguely described, or even just saw the bones of. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of great nostalgic moments of the episode. So let's jump into the recap. We can start by addressing the fact that this is like a 50-minute episode, Spencer. This is the longest episode we got to see of Mandalorian yet. Definitely. It is. Yeah, it's even longer than the finale of season one. It does not feel over long. It is tightly packed, but man, we get a lot of excitement. Yeah, absolutely. I was super excited when this first came out because I thought, oh man, is is it like transitioning to hour-long episodes? Is it going to be that show now? <laughs> nah. uh, no, that's not the case. Uh, this is just happens to be a little bit longer than a normal episode. I think next week it cuts back to about 40 minutes, and that's where most of them on average land. Um, okay, let's get going. So we start with the recap. It starts with Mando and Baby Yoda walking down some alley. Real like gunslinger vibes here, right? Oh yeah. With the with the spotlight on that he's walking in and out of. Uh, Baby Yoda, of course, in his in his carrier, 
uh, levitating right next to him. Great music playing in the background. I'm going to mention the music a lot in this episode. I feel like they did an especially great job with the music in this episode. And as they are walking down this like alleyway or street, um, it looks a little seedy. And Baby Yoda seems interested. Um, maybe a little weirded out as to what the hell they're doing. But I think at this point, he's, uh, he's, he's all in. He trusts Papa Mando. And Mando gets to a door and tells the doorman he's there to see a guy named Gore Koresh. Mm-hmm. I think that's the guy's name. Koresh, interesting name. Interesting name. Like, I feel like if you're going to cook up a fake name in the Star Wars universe, grabbing Koresh out of, <laughs> out of nowhere is a kind of an interesting choice. But hey, whatever. <laughs> Long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, it's got its own independent history attached to it. It's fine. <laughs> so Koresh, uh, he's there to see Koresh, and inside there's some sort of fight going on between, I believe those are uh, Gamorreans? It, it is the first time I've seen Gamorreans on screen in a long time, but that is two Gamorreans going at each other with these weird kind of sonic axes. Yeah, really cool. Were they, are they vibroblades too? I, I We've seen don't, a lot of vibroblades in this series. You know, I almost default to, if it is a bladed weapon, it is a vibroblade, but I can't tell. These seem like they're in some way, got some extra effect going on when it goes to them. Koresh explains that it's not a place for a child. Great quote here by Mando. Where I go, he goes, Koresh, so I've heard. So apparently Mando's reputation is now getting out that he's not only, you know, um, bucked the guild, right? He's now on this uh, trip around the, the galaxy with with the, the child or the asset that he had the falling out with the guild in, but also apparently his reputation of being pretty loyal to the child has now gotten out. Mm-hmm. Mando says he's looking for other Mandalorians to help him find Baby Yoda's home. So th- that this is basically how the entire um, season gets set up, right? That Mando is like, he's been given this task. Hey, you have this child. Obviously, it's a very special being, and you need to relocate it um, with its people. And Mando thinks the way to do that is by tapping into the network of other Mandalorians. He has a limited array of options here. There's only so many cards he can pull. And his default throughout all of his life is, when in danger, when in trouble, when I need something, I can turn to my people. And so that's what he's hoping to pull from here. Except where he ended up the last season, he only knows one other one in existence, and she's the one that just sent him on the mission. Yeah, it's a little weird. I mean, I think I think your point's a good one, which is he doesn't really have a lot of options, but his plan seems pretty flimsy. Like, oh, if I just find other Mandalorians, they'll they'll locate the Jedi. Huh? Really? Will they? It, it is iffy. I mean, he's only got, again, the one Mandalorian he knows about has told him that the Jedi exist. Notably, she told him about him for the very first time, which would probably inform him that maybe they're not the best source of information on this. But as I said, this is almost like a knight errant's quest. It is meant to be a bit foolhardy and ignorant and naive because that's just how they go. Yeah. Baby Yoda seems weirded out by the fighting. Uh, Koresh drops this line to Mando. Do you like to gamble, Mando? Mando, not when I can avoid it. The guy is clearly trying to get Mando to bet his Vescar armor here, which Mando has no interest in. Then Koresh says something like, well, neither do I, basically. I don't like to leave it to chance or something. Some dumbass line like that. And he shoots one of the Gamorreans. And multiple people pull guns on Mando. He is clearly after Mando's armor here, right? I don't think there's any other... Uh, the secondary motivation here, right? He's just clearly after the Vescar because he he has this little monologue about how Vescar is becoming more and more valuable and, to, in the universe. And it caught me off guard because I was assuming that it, so far at least everybody, everybody that's been gunning for Mando has been gunning for the child. And this guy who, did you know who this guy was voiced by, by the way? Uh, no. 
uh, John Leguizamo. Oh, so, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Play, play a good gangster. Um, and I was. Oh no, that's Jonathan Lithgow. Yeah, I was going to let that just sit for a second. It's like he'll he'll work through it. No. He'll work through it. <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> Sorry. Informing Russian gangsters that John Wick is back. That 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 one. Um, so I was expecting this to be continuing that trend. Particularly when he pointed out the child and the reputation the child has. But no, Mando himself is a walking commodity for various people in the underworld now because he's wearing a truly priceless set of Star Wars equivalent of Mithril right now. And everybody wants a piece. Apparently to the point they're willing to risk their lives or in this case die for it to try to get it. Yeah, they just continue to set up all of these liabilities that Mando has, right? He has no connection to the guild anymore. He doesn't really have a connection to the Mandalorians anymore. He has this child that half the bounty hunters in the galaxy or more are after he also is now walking around with you know probably one of the more expensive sets of armor that anybody has seen Mm -hmm. in the galaxy so it's just liability after liability piling up here but in this situation mando very calm says tell me where the mandalorians are and i'll walk out of here without killing you mando triggers and i'm going to use the technical term here spencer spinny fairy bullets I, I think it's like it's like singing birds or something, but I think I like your spin your spinning fairy bullets better. Spinny fairy bullets, yeah, I think that's what he did. And as he presses it, you know, I think he presses it's like a little trigger on his wrist. There's a little bit of a delay until the little fairy things go around and kill everybody. Baby Yoda, seen this trick before, closes up the carrier. <laughs> Very funny scene from Baby Yoda. He hits the button. The button's on the outside of the container too, so mm-hmm. he, he hits. It's the, and then he does this little like barrel roll back in to get get down under it uh, w- w- before it closes up, and then Mando proceeds to kick everybody's ass. It's really cute how well they're starting to understand each other, and it's also again really interesting that Baby Yoda is, is in completely an observer to this fight. No one's gunning for him. This isn't the same thing as you know Transodin's attacking him in a valley and Mando having to continually protect him. Mando's just having to focus on his own protection now for the first time we've really seen it, and. <laughs> He doesn't need any help anyway, though. He wipes the floor with these guys, and our Gore Koresh tries to bolt for it. Yeah, yeah. our favorite cult leader, Koresh, runs off. But Mando <laughs> fires a cable and pulls him back. Koresh explains that there is another Mandalorian. It's on Tatooine. Uh, not enough here um, to, to allow Koresh to walk off unscathed. Uh, he says, thank you, basically, and he walks off. Well, at first, Mando doesn't believe him. Um, which I found interesting because Mando has been on Tatooine before, but Koresh says, no, my intel's good. Trust me. There's another Mandalorian there. And he leaves Koresh just hanging up by his bootstraps um, upside down. And he yells that you can't leave me like this. Cut me down. Mando, that wasn't part of the deal. Mando then shoots the light out that's above Koresh. And I took it to mean that when he shot the light out that like creatures of the night came out and killed Koresh. I mean, is that, am I reading too much into that? No, it, it seems to be straight up what it was. We were, you were commenting on that very film noir kind of lights we were seeing in the street. Apparently they serve a rather practical purpose too, because the moment they die, suddenly the sky, the, the area around them is glowing with red beating carnivorous eyes. Yeah. And these weird like alley dog creatures start to descend on Gore Koresh as he screams. And we get a very much, you know, Han Solo shoots Greedo kind of moment out of Mando that I don't know if we've really seen effectively before in this series, but it was a riot to see it. Yeah. We cut to Mando flying to Tatooine and we get Mando's theme music first time of the season. Very strong, hard trumpets here uh, with Mando's theme music. 
and a bantam watches him fly by. Love the I love the little stuff, right? Yes, I, I love the little stuff. The bantam just kind of sees the razor's crest go over. Mando cuts. Uh, Mando lands at Amy Sedaris's shop. No, no surprise that he goes back here. <laughs> she do, she does have an in Star Wars name, but I don't think either of us care about it. It's Amy Sedaris is there to, is there with her pit droids to prepare his ship again. Yeah, very funny scene where the pit droids run. You know, you can clear that they. You, it's clear that they have like a an mo in this situation, right? Like somebody lands and they immediately go out to maintenance the vehicle, and she stops them. Hey, he doesn't like the droids, and then Mando kind of relents and says, "Ah, you might as well let them." work on it and she goes, oh well, he likes droids now and we know that actually i think his his perspective on droids has shifted a little uh due to r.i.p two fingers up to the sky ig11 and, and yeah both ig11 and also quill i think this is also a bit of a quill thing too where quill browbeat him earlier last season about if you trust me trust my work and that's what droids truly are they are the work of their creators same thing yes. here he trusts her so he's going to trust the little pit droids too as much as they make for delightfully comedic instances in the background as they try to repair his ship. Amy Sedaris does exactly what anyone in the entire Star Wars universe should be doing when he sees Mando and asks where Baby Yoda is. Mando pulls out Baby Yoda. She falls apart, says she'd like to buy Baby Yoda, and then mentions that if it ever... And this is so funny because I think I think that when you and I talk about it, we're talking about Baby Yoda like kind of like a person. Yeah. A lot of people in the canon seem to talk about baby Yoda as some sort of mutant or pet because she, she says if this thing ever like spawns or splits or something, she uses this very unhuman or uh, inhuman like description of how baby Yoda could potentially reproduce at some point. Well, it's partly as a result of the fact, I mean, here's a fair question of the people that have hung out with both Mando and baby Yoda. How many know that baby Yoda is actually sentient? Cause I don't think Amy Sedaris does. I don't think she has any frame of reference to know that. Well, she spent a little time with him. I I don't know. I mean, it's hard to tell. I think I think if if we're going to assume that she knows that, we will have to assume some things happened off screen that we're not privy to. Right. I really think it's only probably Apollo Creed and uh, Cara Dune from last season. I don't I don't know if any of any of the rest of um, uh, Mando's companions, at least the ones that are sadly still alive, really know that Baby Yoda is a thing in his own right, rather than just purely uh, Mando's mascot and pet. Right. Mando asks about Moss Pelgo. Um, Amy Sedaris shows him a map. Mando asks for the speeder bike and takes off. Baby Yoda really enjoying the ride here. Oh, and it's yeah. a theme throughout the season. Spoiler alert, Baby Yoda likes a good ride. You saw that? We saw that in the last season, too. The wind in his, wind in his I suppose, ears. I was going to say hair. Wind in his ears. <laughs> yeah, wind in his ears. He's having a good time. Um, and, you know, shout out to Amy Sedaris' character here. She's a real ally for uh, our guy, Mando, because... You know, think about it. Like, if he didn't have her, he wouldn't be able to know where he wouldn't know where Mos Pelgo is. He mm-hmm. wouldn't have a speeder bike. He'd be SOL like off the gate. But like, she's a she's a pretty good asset for him uh, going forward that he's utilizing here. Particularly in this case, because Mos Pelgo is not just you know a sleepy town. It literally isn't on the map anymore. That's how much it's been removed from removed from the reality of the uh, Tatooine landscape. And to that point, it looks like it takes Mando about a day and a night to actually get there. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's going on a bit of a road trip here. And he strolls in, and the locals are looking at him for sure. Um, you can you can tell they probably don't get a lot of strangers there. I love the Mos Pelgo theme. Did you catch the music? No, I didn't really, didn't really note it, no. Yeah, it's it's very old Western. I mean, th- this entire episode, is, I mean, yeah. we've talked about this series as a Western set in the Star Wars universe. This is a hyper Western-themed um, episode, and the music for Mos Pelgo is in that same thing. Uh, 
particularly last season for the one-off episodes, we talked about how each one was fitting its own particular Western trope or its own Western story. This one is very much the Cowboys and the Indians work together to put down a bigger threat. Yeah, that I is, enough of my notes. I got that. I got that in like three lines. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it does it really well. Helped by the fact it's got a great series of guest stars and a wonderful other threat to, to deal with. Yeah, Mando walks into a bar, and I mean the music stops just short of do 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 It's like is. right there, and uh, he says um, he walks in, and Baby Yoda's following him, but slowly. I don't know if you caught that. Baby Yoda just sort of peeking around the corner. Um, <laughs> Baby Yoda's learned uh, not to just barrel right into the room with Mando anymore. He just mm-hmm. <laughs> he lets Mando go in first, get the lay of the land. I'll follow. Is Mando even just, I don't think Mando is even asking Baby Yoda to stay behind anymore. He's just like, I know you're going to come. Just do it on your own pace. Pretty much. Uh, he tells the bartender, I'm looking for a Mandalorian. Bartender, can you describe him? Someone who looks like me. <laughs> you mean the marshal. In walks someone wearing Boba Fett's motherfucking armor. Sponsor. I guess. I legitimately gasped when I saw that. It's like, oh my God, it's the armor. It is the most iconic armor in all of Star Wars. Well, here's where, we, here's where we're at, right? We know that this story is set five years after the return of the Jedi. We know that in Legends canon, Boba Fett lived. We suspect that in the current Disney canon, they're going to bring Boba Fett back. I thought at some point we would get Boba Fett in this series. We're in Tatooine. We're out in the middle of nowhere. I thought, yeah, this is this is setting up for Boba Fett. I did not expect it to be so damn fast. With you taunting me in the last season that we might be getting some big guest stars and some big figures in the Star Wars lore appearing, I legitimately thought, oh my god, it's on Tatooine. He's just crawled. He crawled out of out of the pit, oh, out so of the like Sarlacc that. pit. It is Boba Fett. is guest starring his episode. Didn't play out that way, but anything is possible in, in John Favreau's take on Star Wars. Very exciting. The guy asks Mando what he's looking for. Mando says he's looked all over for him. The guy says, well, now you found me. Tells Mando to have a drink with him. And he takes off his helmet. And that is when we know that he is, in fact, not Boba Fett. He's not a Mandalorian. He is our favorite Canadian frontiersman, hardware store owner, and all-around good guy sheriff, Seth Bullock from Deadwood, <laughs> Montana. As played by Timothy Oliphant, playing a pretty similar kind of role. He's a much easier going guy than Seth Bullock, but it's glad to see that even in alternative universes, he's still got a similar job. Hilarious that he made him the sheriff, right? Just hilarious. John Favreau is the best. Um, Bullock mentions that he's never seen a real Mandalorian. Mark's <laughs> calling um, him that. Good. Just make yeah, sure. Yeah, it is it's, Bullock. Yeah, it's, I'm it's sure. Sheriff Bullock. Absolutely. I mean, he even uses the same Southern accent. He does. <laughs> I because I, I know exactly what you, you get the sense of what Favreau did here, right? He went to Timothy Oliphant. He's like, "Here's the thing, you're gonna be Seth Bullock, but in Star Wars." And I can, can you if you were if you were Timothy Oliphant in that situation, is there any way you can say no? You're playing one of your most iconic, greatest roles as is, and now doing it on Tatooine. Sold. Awesome. Uh, Bullock says he assumed they both wouldn't be walking out of there, but he saw Baby Yoda. So basically, what he's saying is. You know, when I saw a real Mandalorian here, I knew I was in trouble for wearing this armor. But then I see you got a little baby Yoda with you. Maybe, maybe you're not here to kill me after all. Mando asks where he got the armor. And Bullock gives the staple answer to every question about where anything ever comes from in Tatooine. Bought it off some Jawas. That's like the, that's like the Tatooine equivalent of it fell off a truck. It's just, yes. it, it is everyone's explanation for anyone, anything comes from at all. Yep, it's the ubiquitous answer. Where'd you get that on Tatooine? Bought it off some Jawas. 
it's a, it's a really interesting confrontation between the two of them because Mando previously has been a pretty accommodating dude. I mean, he's he lets a lot, you know, I see off a duck's back, but off a Mandalorian's armor, just kind of go past him. He deals with it. He's r- rather reserved, but he's not one that's particularly prickly about things. But this is just a really effective reminder that when it comes to the Mandalorian code and things that embody that, he is uncompromising because he's ready to gun this guy down right now if he doesn't hand it over immediately. I would like to caveat it with he is he is very dogmatic about what he thinks the Mandalorian creed is. This Just is true. Point that out. I mean, it's it's interesting. I'm curious to see where this is explored more because there have been aspects of the Mandalorian creed that we get in the show that I did not know. I knew the Mandalorians were, you know, elite warriors. I knew they followed some of the philosophy. But Mandalore was an important figure in their past. But these guys seem, I don't know if it's a more recent trend or whatever else, but they have made it a practically a religion that I just didn't know as much about. The, I guess maybe I didn't know that aspect of the Mandalorians before. Yeah. Particularly for this Mando, it is, this dogma is his life. Mando tells him to take off the armor. And a great line here from Sheriff Bullock. I'm sure you call the shots where you come from, but around here, I'm the one that tells people what to do. Yeah. They get into a good old-fashioned stare down. Looks like they're about to draw Spencer. I felt like we might be getting rid of Sheriff Bullock just as soon as we got him. But uh, there is a um, something that saves the day, and it looks like the ground is shaking. Yes, it is in a way that... Did you know what this was going to be? Did you have like, even the slightest guess what this was? Uh, I didn't. I didn't right away. Um, I, they, I think, I yeah, think it would be ahead. some Star Wars equivalent of Comanches. That it would be some raiding force, and we'd fall into that Western trope. Was not I, expecting this. I thought they were Tuscan. I thought it was Tuscan Raiders. Yes. the first thing. Um, they get into. It, it looks like the, the, the ground shakes. Baby Yoda is not digging the fact that the ground is shaking. Just want no, to point no. that out. He's not, not, not feeling it. Mando and Bullock walk outside, and something is clearly blowing through town just under the surface. And we see the scales, um, kind of uh, poking up from the sand. That's when I knew what this was. This Spencer is a proper cret dragon. Yeah, this is. I double checked to make sure I was right in understanding this, but there are two crate dragon species. We've seen yep. Kenyan crate dragons before in various Star Wars video games and other aspects of the lore. I'm pretty sure that other than, like, its skeleton in the original Star Wars movie, we have never seen a greater Crate Dragon, particularly not in a live-action Star Wars th- uh, film. Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting. Like, I think there's a moment later where they are making sure that that distinction is clear to us, and that's when they're doing the, the model, when mm-hmm. the Tusken Raiders are doing the, the model for scale. We'll get there. But I think they do make pains to point out that this is actually a great Crate Dragon. This is, like, the big thing. Yeah, and I enjoyed that their model was built. Yeah, we'll talk about it when we get there. But and this is in just a little background on the the crate dragon, absolute apex predator on Tatooine. Folks in Tatooine know that this thing exists. They're very very rare. I think there's probably just a handful on the planet, but they are not to be fucked with. Obviously, clearly not. As this thing emerges like a sandworm from doom and just passes through the town and rips into a bantha like nobody's business before peacing out. Uh, Sheriff Bullock explains that the dragon has been around long before the settlement has been around. Uh, with the armor, he's been able to protect the town from raiders and sand people, but the dragon is just too much for him. Did you notice that, uh, I pointed this out earlier, but it is really pronounced here in this scene how much of a southern accent Bullock has. And yep. what's interesting to me is that no one else around him has it. 
it clearly it clearly distinguishes him as a complete foreigner to this area. We don't really get much into his background, but that accent is distinct and almost unusual for a Star Wars setting. I don't know if we've met many like proper Southerners uh, in the Star Wars universe, but we have one here. Uh, Bullock says that if Mando helps him kill the dragon, he'll give him the armor. Mando says deal. Interesting point here. Like, So it looked like Mando was ready to just gun him down for the armor. Now, all of a sudden, he's okay with getting a mission to get the armor. Spencer, why do you think the flip in Mando? I liked this because it, again, says as much as he is being just a utter zealot in following his creed here, he does not want to do this. He's looking for the first available excuse as a way of getting out of what he feels he's obliged to do. He can't leave without the armor, but he doesn't want to murder an, a, a, what appears to be innocent, nice, helpful to community guy that's here with it. So if he's given away a, an alternative to doing that, he will jump on it. Uh, Mando says, all right, yeah, I'll do that. I'll just blow it up on my ship. Uh, that's apparently a no-go. Uh, the, the Cret Dragon will sense the, um, will, will, will sense the vibrations from the ship and will go further underground. And that's a pretty, you know, it might seem a mundane detail to the average viewer, but that's actually really important because otherwise, without that detail, Cret Dragons would never be the problem that they are, right? Because yeah. every, every Dominic and Harry has a ship. I mean, you could just shoot it if, if, um, it didn't have that ability to, to sense ships and then go deeper underground. Right. I don't care how thick its hide is. Modern technology would let you kill this creature unless it had some kind of instinctual advantage. And as we see here, this thing lives and operates in the sand. Uh, I think in the classic lore, it actually has 10 like arms that actually use, it uses to swim through the sand with. But the times you see it out of the sand are relatively limited. Pretty much when it just wants to kill. Yep. Bullock does say that he knows where its home is <clears throat> um, and they take off. On the way, uh, Sheriff Bullock explains to Mando that when they caught word of the second Death Star blowing up, they celebrated. There's blaster fire all over Mos Eisley, signaling that the empirical ob- uh, occupation was over. Um, a couple things here. One, I, I, I love when they tie in to the greater political dynamics of the universe, like in, in these stories, right? When it's like, you know, what we know has happened in the Star Wars universe that is so important that is like the the through line of the series mm-hmm. is that background thing that's occurring that does affect most Pelgo. I also find it interesting that apparently on Mos Eisley, if, if the story is to be taken at face value, that, you know, the second Death Star was, was uh, blown up and Mos Eisley was liberated right away. Yeah, that it, was shocking to me that it happened that fast. It's from the description, it either was a popular revolt or just simply a consolidation of imperial resources. That they're like the moment they got the news, the imperial garrison seemingly went, "Not worth it. We're out. We're going somewhere else." I think that's probably what happened, right? Because like, why are they going to stretch their resources to control Tatooine? Yeah, they just lost the bulk of the imperial. The you know, the bulk of the extra imperial fleet is now burning in orbit over over Endor. Um, they've lost the emperor. They've lost what must have been a massive amount of personnel and resources for the second Death Star itself, they have no means available to garrison the entirety of the galaxy anymore. They just don't, they just can't do it. Particularly too, I hadn't really thought about this as well, but we don't hear much about the huts in this. Large part because I imagine with um, Jabba dying in Return of the Jedi, there might be a bit of a power vacuum there too when it comes to hut leadership over Tatooine. Yeah, probably so. Um, I, I think that, 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 I think you had both of those things going on to create a power vacuum. And, you know, we already we see in this flashback that that gets filled very, very quickly in this in this small town and 
organization that he called the Mining Collective came in and took over. In <laughs> a flashback, we, yeah, in a flashback, we see that they shot up the bar. It seemed to be the night that this, the, the the Death Star, the second Death Star, exploded and Imperial occupation of Tatooine went kablooey. Bullock saved the bartender and then he took off. And he said he took what he could from the invaders. He took a cantina, which is basically like a canteen, um, and had no idea it was full of silicax crystals i'd never heard of these crystals before spencer had you it's a brand new word to me yeah um he said i guess every once in a while both suns shine on a womp rat's tail <laughs> so we're getting more <laughs> sheriff bullock we're getting more southern but then i also love the tie into the star wars universe both suns <laughs> yes gotta keep it right and uh, says yeah go ahead i gotta tell you we see a lot of people traveling during the day on both sides of Tatooine. Does not seem like the best life choice. I don't think Sarah, Sheriff Bullock has much of an alternative here. He's just running. But, man, as we see, you will die quick if you do that. Yeah. He says he wandered for days, no food or water. And then the Jawas found him, as they do, in one of their monstrous tanks. What What are they? Is it, are they called sand crawlers? What are the name they, of these things? They are sand crawlers. They were leftovers. for These are, these are ancient vehicles. These are like thousands of years old of like... Way back in the day, a mining group came to Tatooine to try to mine what appeared to be a very valuable set of ore that was across the planet, found out it was actually relatively useless, useless, and just left the sand crawlers behind. And you know, if you leave something of any value behind, a Jawa is going to take it and use it. And they've been using them ever since. On board, the Jawas are marveling at his crystals. And I love the, 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 the creed of the Jawas, right? Mm. They find this guy, he's on death's door mm-hmm. needs i mean you, you you see in the flashback he's like drinking water like as fast as he can he's he's in he's in bad shape the jawas are not going to steal these crystals off of this guy mm-hmm. they are going to trade like you know and and i think that that small detail and then some details that we get later on with the tuscan raiders i think illustrate um how what the Mandalorian is trying to do with a lot of these subs, a lot of these species that we know of in the mm-hmm. Star Wars universe, they're trying to fill them out and humanize them, or at least give them a set of values or a creed or a culture uh, around them that they didn't really have before in the main canon. I think that's a really great point. I think there's been some criticism that's been directed at both the Star Wars and the Star Trek universe that their alien species can kind of serve as just like a planet of hats, of where it's a it's a species that seemingly just has one trait, one trait, and it becomes tropey really quick. And with how much time we spent on Tatooine, like you said, we've really got an opportunity to more round out the Jawas and the Tuscans, which are fascinating people if you dig deep into the lore, but in a way we've never gotten to see too much on the screen. And like you said, uh, while Jawa will rob you blind if you leave it behind, doesn't seem like they're willing to do so to a, to a person that they find. They're very honest no. traders when it comes to this. No, they'll scout, they'll salvage, right? But they're not going to just, do. they're not just going to, they're not going to pickpocket you. Um, and he says the Jawa's office, their finest in exchange, but he saw the armor in the corner. So he took that and came back to Mos Pelgo and threw every damn body over the top rope, winning the Royal Rumble and liberating the town from the control of the miners. Shout out to Sheriff Bullock. Now, I I like this scene because it showed really with the value system of this guy, right? That like he, he really just wanted to help this town out and help the people that he presumably got to know when he was living at most pelgo we don't really know why he came to that settlement to begin with but he's there to help them and he trades the only thing he has of value to try to help them and he carries it out i like that a lot right mm-hmm. all i could think about is how in the high hell did boba fett's armor get in the sand crawler with these jawas that's the my mind went and i had to pause it to think about it 
We don't know. It is literally Boba Fett's armor. We saw before with the Mandalorians that rescued um, Mando when he was when he was a small child, when he was still Jim, um, that there are aspects of Boba Fett's classic armor that seem relatively common among Mandalorian armor. So it's perfectly possible it's not literally Boba Fett's armor. It certainly looks like it. I think it's Boba Fett's armor, and I think we we get an indication at the end of the episode that it that it is. But we'll, we'll we can get there. Yeah. Um, in the process of uh, killing these uh, these mining the collect mining collective folks, mm-hmm. he uses one of the missiles from Boba Fett's Boba Fett's backpack, which still very much worked. Which showed me that <laughs> one of two things happened here. Mm-hmm. Um, we, assuming this is Boba Fett's armor, which I'm willing to take that leap that the armor and the technology around it was relatively untouched from Boba Fett's time in the Sarlacc or the Jawas fixed it, which I think that's, that's in play too, right? Jawas only sell and trade the finest quality of goods. You know, this as well as I do. There are no half asteroids that are going to blow a motivator that you'd ever buy from a Jawa. So I assure you that even if, even if they weren't in the best quality conditions, the Jawas ensured that they were before they engaged in this trade. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, he seemed to know how that missile worked pretty well or m- missile worked. Um, and if you notice it, it, small point, but when he walks back into the town after he's gotten this, this armor from the Jawas, he's got two missiles. When we see him in later scenes, he's only got one. So that tells God, me, <laughs> yeah, that tells me that he has fired. He's, he's fired exactly one of these missiles. It mm-hmm. worked perfectly. And he's got one more teed up. <laughs> I mean, it's not like anyone, reasonably speaking, I don't think he's going to find a replacement for that easily in the ass end of Tatooine. And I don't think he's going to travel that far to try to get mm-hmm. another one. Probably not the resources to buy another one. No, I think he's, he's, he's limited to two. You know, it's like the video game, right? When you, you get the, you get the Warhammer or whatever, you get two right. swings of it. That's it. Yeah. You, you've used the BFG. You've got the for twice and you're going to keep that throughout the rest of the game until that one moment you really need it. Cut back to present day and they approach a cave and hear a distant growling and it looks like a group of hyenas. Uh, Spencer, do you have a name for these creatures? I, I don't. I actually did not know what these were. I, I didn't know what they were and couldn't find it on the uh, yield internet. So uh, maybe they don't have a name. And Mando goes up to them and he's speaking Tuscan. So a couple things here. One, yet another language the fucking Mando knows. Like how many damn languages did he learn before he kicked, uh, you know, kicked off in the universe to be a bounty hunter? Obviously a lot. And he also is aware enough of the culture on Tatooine to know that these dog-looking hyena things are pets of the Tusken Raiders. So I was impressed that he knew that and even thought to start speaking Tusken to them. Uh, looking it up, these appear to be called massifs. Like massifs? Mass- mastiff without the T. Massifs. Oh, okay. All right. Well, they got a name. Massifs. And he knew that they were probably... Um, Tuscan pets and he started speaking to them as Tuscans that uh, caused some Tuscans to walk out and he started speaking to them too it's an impressive it's an impressive thing well, previously I maybe not even just like last season he did not speak Tuscan but apparently Mando's a bit of a linguist when it comes to this or at least takes pride in learning a little bit wherever he goes and I also like the continuity with how the Tuscans speak with what we saw in A New Hope, which is, yeah, they have these sounds, which sound a little bit more like growling or mm-hmm. like yipping. But he, it also, I think it's a, I think it's a twofold language. I think it's how you, how you speak, but also the hand gestures, because it's, the hand gestures seem to be communicating as well. So it's like he's signing and talking at the same time. Which makes a lot of sense from a species that, or a, a people uh, that 
are permanently covered up. So much of our language yep. and communication is being able to see another person's face or see another person's gestures. And it's clearly it's clear that they're using hand gestures to complement what otherwise could be a limitation. Yep. Bullock asks Mando what's going on, and Mando explains that the Raiders want to kill the Gret Dragon too. So we have got some um, some bedfellows here, the Tuscan mm-hmm. Raiders. Go ahead. No, I, just, I, I really do enjoy that Mando, his default... His default kind of reaction when he's given a problem in a particular world is go and talk to the locals. And there are no more of a local than the Tuscan Raiders when it comes to Tatooine. And wouldn't that make sense for somebody whose like job it is to just drop into worlds, accomplish a mission and leave? Like they would have the street smarts to know. The smart thing to do here is to talk to the Tuscans and say, hey, heard of the Kray Dragon? What do you think of it? Yeah. Right? It's, it's very smart. I do not have the time for local prejudices. I got a clock to meet. I got I, I to talk to people who actually know the things. Later that night around a campfire, they sit and Mando's talking to them. A combination of grunts and the hand signals again. They offer Bullock a cup of water and he refuses bad look on Bullock's part. Mando says they are insulted. They steal, they being humans, steal the, well, I don't know if Tuscan Raiders are humans, but basically the the, the villagers, right? Uh, The the inhabitants of of Mos Pogo. Um, You steal the water and now you refuse, refuse to drink some that they have. Conversation escalates until Bullock hops up and gets in the face of one of the Tuscan Raiders. Mando fires up his flamethrower to calm everybody down, which just seems to tickle Baby Yoda. <laughs> I don't know if you caught that, but Baby Yoda just starts giggling. Yeah, he's gleeful at this, which, again, Baby Yoda enjoys him a little bit of violence. Maybe he's picking up some bad traits from Mando as time goes on. I also think, like, you know, he's just not scared of the fire, you know, no. kind of conquered that in the last episode. Mm-hmm. So uh, he just kind of got a kick out of what uh, Mando was doing here. Mando tells them both that if they fight amongst themselves, the monster will kill them all. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> I don't think the monster's going to kill you. I think it's just going to make life a little bit annoying. But anyway, he was trying to, to, to create some common ground here. Which works. Um, which works. Yeah. Seems like the, seems like the, uh, it seems like the Tusken Raiders are very receptive to this. That they're here for a purpose, they want to work with him, but there are basic rules of decorum that Seth Bullock is just refusing to entertain right now. Yep. Cut to the Tuscans taking Mando and Bullock to a large cave. Spencer, did you notice how they were traveling? Uh, they were traveling in single file throughout every time that we saw them. Single file to hide their numbers. I uh, loved that. First, I loved thing that. We, first thing we hear about Tusken Raiders from Obi-Wan Kenobi in Episode 4 New Hope is that the Tuscans travel in single file to hide their numbers. Perfect continuity here. The Tuscans are traveling in single file. Yeah, the moment, moment I saw that point at the bridge is, oh my God, Favreau reads the original scripts and watched the films before he writes this. That's great. Yeah, Mando explains that it lives in an abandoned Sarlacc pit. Great back and forth here. Bullock, I've lived in Tatooine my whole life. There's no such thing as an abandoned Sarlacc pit. Mando, there is if you eat the Sarlacc. Can't, can't <laughs> argue with that logic. Mando explains that the Raiders have studied the digestive cycle of the dragons for generations. They feed it so that it'll sleep longer. Interesting on a few fronts here, Spencer. One, it shows the intelligence of the Raiders, mm-hmm. which I'm going to I'm gonna go on a jag here about how they're filling out the culture of the Tusken Raiders here in a bit, but I really liked it. Spoiler. And two, Bullock didn't know this, but these Tusken Raiders, who he thought were terrible, who were the worst, you know, they, who were their enemy, have been helping Mos Pelago all along by doing this to the dragon. I don't, I don't know if you, you had that that leap I, I i i caught it though because i was like oh so they figured out when to feed this thing so that it sleeps the maximum amount of hours a day mm-hmm. that's helping moss pelgo and they don't even know the tuscan raiders are doing it 
Absolutely. I, when, he, when, when he said settlement, I think Mando was purposely keeping ambiguous which settlement that he meant. But regardless of what settlement they're intending to protect, it obviously is helping Mos Pelago. But the fact of doing this, apparently they've been doing this for I don't even know how long. Yep. Uh, meanwhile, Baby Yoda is watching on as the dragon comes out and eats the raider, leaving behind the banta. Great line here from Mando. <laughs> They might be open to some fresh ideas. It, so it, it, it is legitimately yeah. funny how caught off guard the Tuscans are by this. It's like, oh, well, that's that's been working for a very long time. What has changed about this dragon's behavior that it is no longer working under those terms? I don't know. It's yeah, it's strange, and it, it, I think we're meant to believe that the crate dragon is understanding what's going on a lot more than maybe you would suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think this thing is just a sand lizard, you're crazy. It's it's much smarter than that. And I think that it kind of knew something was off with this this newest feeding and decided to lash out. That's my guess. My guess, yeah. Cut to the Raiders who've made a map. Uh, this is the, the scene I was referencing before. They've made a little map to scale, a um, uh, little dragon in it, and Bullock questions if it's to scale. Because if it is, the dragon is much larger than he thought it was. Apparently, Bullock has only ever seen maybe the, the head of the dragon. Yeah. And, you know, Mando inquires and says, no, no, it's to scale, which freaks out Bullock. He says it's too big. They might need to make other arrangements. And the raiders start sprinkling in more um, more stones, which would indicate that there are more people there to help. Bullock says, well, where are they getting the reinforcements? Mando, I volunteered your village. <laughs> what do you think of this scene? I thought it was a great scene for a couple of reasons. One, I'm pretty sure the only time we've ever seen a, great, a greater crate dragon before was the bones of one as C-3PO yeah. and R2-D2 are walking past it. And so Question little, for you. Yeah. Did you have the the crate Dragon bones in the Star Wars collectible card game? I did. I hadn't thought about that, <laughs> but yes, I have that card. Good call. <laughs> yep. But yeah, it was still prop in the background of Tatooine back in the original movie, so it's nice to see that kind of referenced here. But otherwise, it makes for just a great scene. I love how practical the Tusken Raiders are about this. It's just like, okay, this thing is huge. It's a problem now. It's not following the rules, baby, that we've studied for generations. What do we do about it? Okay, well, we're working with this guy. Let's bring in his people. <laughs> it's just a very natural, logical thought process for them. But it's going to create some tension, obviously. Some little local politics, yeah. Uh, Mando and Bullock ride back to Mos Pogo. And uh, Bullock says that the Tuscans attacked them sometimes back. Killed half dozen. He reckons he killed double the number of raiders. I, I, I love that he threw that. Yeah. No way totally he lying. killed 12 raiders. He did not kill 12 raiders. And keep that damn second missile on its back. <laughs> he would have had to use that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mando says the town respects him. They'll listen to reason. So we set up for, and you referenced this earlier, we have to work with the natives for a greater good storyline, right? Yes. This, this is the is cowboys the and Indians working together to beat the greater good. Or for the greater good. Yeah, to beat the greater threat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bullock explains the situation to the folks. Uh, explains that Mando would be willing to help them kill the dragon in exchange for the armor, but they need help. And the sand people are willing to help. Notice, he's speaking to Mando. They're the Tusken Raiders. He's speaking to the people in town. They're the sand people. I think the sand people is a bit of a slur. I agree. I think this is very much a way of uh, dismissively putting down the sand, putting down the uh, Tusken Raiders, and it, it's it's accurate too. Pretty much whatever we've seen back in the prior lore, a pe- person who's grown up on Tatooine referred to them. It's been Sand People. That just mm-hmm. appears to be the common slur for them. Mm-hmm. 
The crowd rumbles and Mando explains that the Tuscans are raiders. That's true. But they are hard people. But the Dune, the Dune Sea is hard. It's a, it's a good point. It's like, what do you expect them? I mean, they can't be soft if they're going to live generations and generations out in the Dune Sea. And they keep their word. Mando seems to know this. I don't know how the hell he knows they keep their word, but he says it. <laughs> uh, but but again, he, know, he knows how to speak Tuscan, so maybe he learned something about them mm-hmm. uh, along the way. Well- He's, uh, he said they will help kill the dragon and they will never raise a blaster against the town again if they can all just work together. Fair damn trade right there. 100%. Yeah, the townspeople are, are making out in this trade. And we I, I didn't realize, like I was thinking, I was like, wow, why did the Tuscans sign up to do this? There's a scene where I, I figure out, okay, well, they, they do actually get they do actually get something else for yeah. their troubles later on. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a very offhand mention we even get in this conversation. Is that all they're asking for is that you you leave the carcass and its icker behind? It's like you just leave the, leave them the body. Not a big deal. <laughs> yeah, big fucking deal. As it turns out. Yeah, huge. <laughs> Absolutely. Cut to the townsfolk watching the raiders come up to an outpost and again single file to hide their numbers. Every, every single time. With the town. Yep, they work with the town folk to load up what looked like bombs to me. I think they had a different name for them, but these are effect bombs, right? They're, they're, from what we've heard, this town operates as a mining, you know, town independently of any mining collective. I'm guessing these are like uh, blasting charges for the mines. Yeah, and a fight breaks out because I guess uh, one of the the raiders, or the Tuscans, drop one of the bombs. Um, Bullock breaks it up and just explains like it was a mistake. Drop it. It seems that Bullock is learning a little bit here, Spencer. It, it does. He's progressing as a character. He's very much becoming the Seth Bullock of this town. On their way back, multiple Bantas seem equipped with bombs. So it's just like, just draped with bombs. And it's funny to me, Spencer, just a small point, how quick the Raiders, uh, the Tuscan Raiders are to sacrifice their Bantas. And if you know anything about like the, the lore behind the, the, the Tuscan Raiders, the Bantas are really, really valuable to them because okay. that's how they... That's how they travel around. Um, they do They do eventually harvest them for meat as they get older. Mm-hmm. So it would tell me if they're willing to just blindly sacrifice, you know, upwards four or five bantas, they have to hate this damn dragon. Yeah, this dragon is clearly causing them a lot of problems off screen. They may have been trying yeah. to go keep it going through old customs, but it's clear this thing has in recent years gotten agitated in some way and is causing a lot of issues. Because, I mean... A clear kind of inspiration for the, the Tusker Raiders is like Comanches and their horses. Same thing when it comes to bandits. They are the basis by their society. They are their means of travel. They are their means of food and resources. They are everything. So like you said, the fact that they're willing to sacrifice them for the horses' operation, they are going whole tilt to make sure this thing dies. They are committed to this purpose. Yep. And we see that in the events that, that, that play out here. They arrive at the cave and one of the, the Tuscans uh, approaches it. Gets down, touches the sand, gets up, and communicates back to the group that the dragon is sleeping. Impressive. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know. That's just impressive. I, I, I love these kind of moments just showing how you know competent and skilled the Tuscan Raiders are. I mean, how brave that damn guy is. The last guy we saw go up that cave mouth got eaten. And this guy's going, which is a couple other dudes, to check and feel the ground and know the vibrations of this thing. Also, uh, another pressing point. I'm not sure which impressive you're referencing. But the fact that this thing is so massive that it's causing seismic effect. By just breathing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mando then says, let's get to work. Great teamwork montage here mm-hmm. with the voiceover from my, Mando explaining the plan. The plan is they bury the bombs at the opening of the cave, get the thing angry enough that it charges out. Its belly goes over the top of the uh, the bombs. They press the detonator. Boom. It kablodes. And um, 
dead crate. This That's is, the plan. This is a very classic method for fighting a crate dragon. Usually it works on decisively smaller ones, like, you know, a canyon dragon, but you know it's going to work. It's got plenty of foundation in the lore that this kind of explosive charge will help take them down, or at least piss them off. Cut to three Tuscans walking up to the cave. They start yelling, making all kinds of racket, and that wakes up the crate dragon. The raiders take off as the dragon follows them. It looks like these three raiders survive, though, Spencer. Did you notice that? Yeah, I think they successfully get away. It's a close call. This thing is right on their heels, but they're pretty sure-footed. Yeah. Uh, they start firing arrows. They, being the Tuscan Raiders, start firing arrows and cables at it. The dragon starts to go back in, but the Raiders start to pull, and, and they're really doing everything they can to try to get this thing angry, get it out. And um, at this point, the Raiders are clearly doing the most work. But as it starts to back up, it looks like the plan is failing. The townsfolk, duh, 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 they come in, reinforcement. They start shooting at it uh, with their blasters. They start throwing grenades. And this really pisses the dragon off. And it comes out. It lunges for a second attack, coming much further out this time. Bullet keeps wanting to fire the detonator, but Mando makes him hold off. Smart move there by Mando because you get one shot at this thing. You need to make sure the thing is out as far as it possibly can be. Mm -hmm. The dragon goes further and further out. Damn, this thing is huge. Because yeah. we don't even see the end of it. I mean, it, it's still like it, the tail is still way back in the cave. Now, even by the end of this episode, even though it's not po by the point this thing is dead, we still don't see the full expanse of this dragon. Mm -hmm. And it spits a large amount of fluid out of its mouth. Now, Spencer, did you know what this was? Uh, it is. I have heard before that crate dragon uh, kind of. It's, I don't think it's really venom. It's kind of saliva. It has, has a bit of an acidic effect. It's like the bile that helps them yeah, it's like like break things process. down in their stomach. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of the same stuff like that, like, if you fall in a sarlacc pit, you're going to be covered in. It, it, it's just acid, basically. Yeah. But not like not like acid touch your skin, burn acid, but it's just liquid that, that has acidic properties. Right. It's similar to like how a starfish or something eats over. It almost, like, throws its stomach out on, its, out on what it wants to consume to... Break, they'll break it down or at least hurt it outside before it ever starts to consume it. And it clearly has a bit of a negative effect on on people when it's thrown on them. Yep. And it finally gets out far enough. Boom, they hit the detonator. Bam, it explodes. And the dragon retreats. Bullock, I don't think it's dead. Mando, me either. <laughs> and it, this is another further, it's another further demonstration that this thing has at least a, you know, an animal's cunning kind of intelligence associated with it. Of where upon realizing that the ground is lava and that people are trying to kill it there, it reappears on a perch high above everybody so it can just start spraying out stomach juices on all of them. Yeah. <laughs> Great way to explain that there, stomach juices. Then we, yep, we see the dragon at the top of this mountain. It's spitting out the acid. Mando and Bullock use their jetpacks to fly up there to try to agitate it some more, which works. They shoot at it, and uh, the dragon then stops shooting the, the acid and directs its focus to them. It tries to take a bite out of them. They, boop, they use the, um, uh, the jetpack to escape, barely, pretty close, and then the dragon goes missing. After a beat, they see it's now coming at them from behind. This thing is huge and really smart. Terrifying that it, it figured out first to perch up to shoot the acid and then, oh, okay, that didn't work. Let me now flank them and come up from the rear. Um, Mando gets an idea, which clearly includes one of the Bantas that is loaded with bombs. Mando tells Bullock, uh, hey, get its attention, which he does. Mando then says, hey, you need to go take care of the child. And then fires Bullock's jetpack against his will. So Bullock just shoots off. <laughs> um, 
And Mando uh, holds the Banta near him, allowing the Great Dragon to eat both him and the Banta. Did you know what Mando was doing here? Uh, you know, I assumed he was going to try something along the lines of, you know, force the explosives down its gullet, take it out from the inside kind of thing. Was not expecting him to take a personal role in that effort. Yeah, I think I think he had to, right, to, to ensure that they would actually actually eat the Banta. Uh, Baby Yoda is watching this, does not know what to think of his dad just getting eaten. Um, but all of a sudden, we see the dragon come up with blue electroshock all over its mouth. So Mando had used that electro charge that's in his his um, his spear mm-hmm. to electrocute it from the inside. Mando flies out of the mouth, sets off the detonator. Boom! The dragon has exploded, and the townspeople and the raiders cheer. Woo, we have victory. The Krite Dragon is dead. The Krite Dragon is dead. One of the more impressive explosions I think I've seen in Star Wars. The, you know, overhead... I almost wonder if they're, if they're filming this in just like a, a purposefully wide-angle lens for a lot of these shots of the Great Dragon, but seeing that overhead shot of it blowing up, the, you know, seismic effect of the explosion going out and everybody else getting swamped with the sand, really beautiful shot. Cut to the Raiders doing the extremely smart thing. MVP moment of the episode here. They're harvesting the meat, Spencer. We are not wasting any time. This will feed us forever. How um how long do you think they're eating crate Dragon jerky? Uh, you know, given how long they can probably preserve that stuff, given the size of this thing, given the... I mean, how big of a community do you think this is among the Tuscan Raiders? We don't see them all. They probably don't contribute all their forces. But I'm not betting it's like a thousand people or anything. I'm betting it's, you know, max of a few hundred. So between that and the size of this thing, years, years of eating jerky. I I think they're probably eating Great Dragon jerky for years. I agree. Um, But not before Mando takes a pretty big chunk of it himself. Uh, Mando apologizes to Bullock for not being able to explain his plan in the moment. Bullock says, no need. It's all good. And Bullock, true to his word. Um, like every good, hardworking, hardware salesman from Montana is, and he hands over Boba Fett's armor. Without issue. I, I really enjoy how everyone we see in this is a fair actor. There, nobody tries to, tr- other than like at the very beginning with John Leguizamo the gangster, everybody else is really doing a fair deal when it comes to their terms. They set some terms, they negotiate them out, they play them out as they should, and everybody walks away happy. Mm-hmm. Now, Bullock says, uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, we'll, let's finish this up, and i got a question for you afterwards. Bullock says, I hope our paths cross again. Mando, speaking on behalf of the entire Star Wars universe, says, so do I. Uh, really hope we see this character again. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah. and the Tuscans find an egg or a pearl uh, and freak out. So I think, you know, we're meant to think the, the, the Tuscans, it looked like they were getting a raw deal here. I think they got the very best part of this deal. They get the, they don't have to deal with the Cry Dragon anymore, which has obviously been a pain for them for generations. They get years worth of food and now they get some sort of like pearl that looks to be very very valuable this my friend is the largest crate dragon pearl i have ever seen before in any form of star wars media i have seen them in varying sizes i have sold them i have equipped them in my lightsaber in various games and various settings that thing is what three feet across in terms of this orb, how big is this thing that this guy hauls out of it? It's huge. It's probably if they if they're able to, and uh, you know who did who did the Tuscan sell to Spencer? They probably sell to the Jawas. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it, if they're going to get anything close to fair market value for this thing, it's got to be enough to equip the Raiders for and and feed and water them for generations. Yeah, got to be careful with it though. If you've read your Steinbeck, you got to be careful with these pearls. Take your first offer. Don't be greedy. Keep them around. But like you, I was I was a little bit worried when it came to this came to this that 
maybe the Tuscan Raiders were getting the raw end of this deal. They clearly suffered no. the majority of the cash plays when it came to doing this fighting. They did the yes. majority of the legwork. They put in the majority of the resources. Was this a fair trade? But then all this food, this incredibly valuable resource, just from not only a cultural standpoint, but from a financial one, if they want to sell it, and added benefit too, not only to take out the crate dragon, but effectively they've they've neutralized the village as a threat to them too. Yep. It, yeah. The, the the Tuscan Raiders have made out here. Yes. Um, huge. I mean, this is like the type of thing they'll be telling their grandchildren about. I'm sure about the day they killed the crate dragon, had enough food for for years, and they got the pearl, which probably bought the home that they're sitting in at the time they tell the story. Yeah. Uh, cut to Mando driving off. Someone is watching him, Spencer. It is indeed our friend Boba Fett. That, has been watching. That's your theory here. I know it's Boba Fett. How do you know it's, it's Boba Fett? Because it's the same actor who was in the prequel. Was it? Who played Jango Fett. I did not recognize him. But th- this was, uh, what was his name? Something Morrison, right? The actor? Yeah, it's the same actor that played Jango Fett in the um, in the prequels. I did not put two and two together. That is great. I'm shaking right now. I hadn't, I, I, I hadn't realized that. Yeah, it's it's the same actor. This is Boba. What's Django. his damn armor? Damn it! Yes, it is Boba Fett, and Boba Fett presumably watched all this go down. It makes perfect sense. Um, oh my god, we so have, Bo- we have Boba Fett on the screen again. So exciting! Yes, we saw Boba Fett. That is absolutely Boba Fett, and uh, the promotional materials around Episode One after it was released. You know, they were pretty open about, yes, this is Boba Fett because folks did the, you were able to make the connection that I did. This is the same actor who played Django Fett. Obviously, Boba Fett's son's going to look exactly the same or very close. This is Boba Fett. He has watched Mando do this. Man, you were calling at the end of last season. You were suggesting that we might, we might, we might get some like major Star Wars characters from the lore in this, whereas previously it's been focused much more around the margins, that they are the distant heroes we wouldn't reasonably see. I mean, it makes sense here because the last we saw him, he was he was falling into a Sarlacc pit. But man, Boba Fett himself is going to be, be in this series. Maybe I'm perfectly yep. I'm perfectly willing well, to bet least, that Favreau, we at least saw him. We, we at least saw him, and I'm perfectly willing to bet that Favreau is going to taunt us with that as long as he humanly can. Because man, is that a card to pull at some point? But awesome! It's yeah, it's so exciting, exciting. Exciting potential. Yeah. So there you go. That is the recap of season one, season two, episode one. Spencer, do you want to move on to best line of the episode? Well, one question I had for you is what your thoughts were at the end of this episode. Of where did you think that Mando was going next? Because my thought was that he was going to go check out the Jawas. You know, ask them where they got the armor from. Yeah, I didn't really have a thought there, to be honest with you. And now I can't answer it because I've seen episode two. So I, I, I don't... I don't. I did not. I did not have a thought there. What, what were you thinking? I, 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 my thought was that he was going to go talk to the Jawas. That was my. That was my. Given that he knew that they had found the armor, I figured he would have questions about where the hell that came from. Um, and that's at this point the only other kind of lead he has. He doesn't have any other information really at this point. The, the one bit of information he had is now not panned out. He's, meet, he's met a great guy that we hope we meet again in the Star Wars universe, but it's not Mandalorians. So. Other than just going back to Moss Eisley and going back to the cantina and hoping something happens, there's really have much to go on here. No, he doesn't. Although, you know, you could, yeah, yeah I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, he, he probably just suspects that the Jawas found it and, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to, to give him much information. But who knows? Maybe he does go back to talk to the Jawas. Um, yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, I believe we have, a, we have a best line of the episode we have to debate. Best line of the episode. Spencer, do you have any nominees? I've got a few. I loved a lot of the... I mean, there was 
this was a wonderfully filmed episode. It had some great guest stars. Seth Bullock appearing in the Star Wars universe was great. Um, most of my favorite lines that really come from, like, I think the first half of it, of where, uh, like you said early on, that line about where I go, he goes, and so I've heard. I mm-hmm. like the idea that they're developing a reputation as a duo, as their own little mandator- Mandalorian clan at this point. So that was a good line. Uh, Mando's really cold line about, I promise you, you will not die by my hand, followed up a minute later by, that wasn't part of the deal, and just not only walking away, but setting up the guy to be brutally torn apart by uh, creatures of the night was cold and interesting. I like that. Yep. Uh, uh, um, uh, Amy Sedaris's, you know, little rapid patter line, hey, look, looks like he remembers me. How much do you want for it? Just kidding, not, but not really. You know, this thing ever, <laughs> if this thing ever uh, divides or buds, I'll gladly pay you for the ice, the offspring. It's great in character from we've seen her before, and it's just a funny line that every Star Wars fan's thinking if they ever got to hold Baby Yoda. Yep, speaking for all of us. Uh, just a couple of the quick ones. Uh, I Again, I love Seth Bullock's line about, look, pal, I'm sure you call the shots where you come from, but around here, I'm the one that tells folks what to do. Mm-hmm. I like that very much. That, that is... That is like the line a, a marshal or a sheriff in a small western town says or is least thinking in every scene they're ever in. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm hired to push people around. That's what I do. And yeah, the la- last line you already referenced as well. Look, I've lived on Tatooine my, my whole life. There's no such thing as the banded Sarlacc pit. Mando, there is if you eat the, there is if you eat the Sarlacc. Yeah, pretty great. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and award best line of the episode, Spencer. You've already covered it. It has to be this line, I think. Um, it is, wherever I go, he goes. So I've heard. It's a, it is embodiment of what the, the quest the two of them are on. That this is a duo's journey we see over the course of this series, and I like that they're. It's not not only what they're living, but it's what the universe itself is starting to recognize. Mm-hmm. That's it. All right, Spencer. Our last segment here. A lot of meat on the bone, as I talked about before. Uh, a lot of different options here for most nostalgic moment of the episodes. Go! Yeah, man, it's on Tatooine, man. It's on yep. Tatooine. It's already mm-hmm. going to be dripping with nostalgia. Like you referenced, I love the fact that we're getting a greater dive into the Tusken Raiders and the Jawas. I like the fact we're referencing things like Sarlacc pits. I like the fact that the Gamorreans are reappearing. I like the fact that this episode strongly indicates that Jon Favreau played Knights of the Republic because there are a lot of story beats and story moments that are being checked as he's going through this journey. I like that we confirmed, in spite of your doubt, that that droid was indeed R5-D4, and apparently he's working with Amy Sedaris. So let's keep track of that. Uh, yep. Boba Fett's armor, and now confirming it's Boba Fett himself. I mean, I was originally going to say the fact that we saw a greater crate dragon on screen. Had never seen that before. Had just been talked about in the lore. I have right. seen Kyle Katarn punch Kel Dragons in the face underneath Jawa's palace. I have seen Revan blow up a, a, a canyon's uh, crate dragon from the inside using mines, similar to this story, in Knights of the Old Republic. I've seen them harvest the crate dragon pearls for the purpose of negotiating deals with the Tusken Raider people. I've seen all those things. I put a friggin' a crate dragon pearl in my lightsaber in some games before, given its profound effects on a lightsaber's blade. But I have never seen a greater crate dragon before until this episode. But... While that was going to win, now that you have told and confirmed to me, and I believe you, that we have seen Boba Fett in the flesh, not just maybe potentially possibly his armor, how could that not win? It's got to be Boba Fett, right? I mean, yeah, I completely agree with you. The Great Dragon was a, was a strong number two, and I, it has more tie-ins to the, the canon than even I know, because I haven't played Knights of the Old Republic. Um, it, it, so, yeah. It, I mean, a Great Dragon also, and just... 
particularly in this depiction of it, uh, has even nostalgic rep- uh, tieback to bef- the foundations of Star Wars itself. But one of the greatest inspirations for the Star War- for Star Wars movies, among many other things, but was the Dune series by Frank Herbert. Uh, the planet of Dune, Arrakis, has obvious parallels to Tatooine. It's clear that aspects of that, you know, high fantasy and galactic-spanning um, lore worked into how Star Wars was developed. And so seeing a greater crate dragon work like a sandworm from Dune, like Shai Halud emerging through the sand and consuming things, was just great from a lover of both of those series. But, as said, it's Boba Fett. The man has been capturing the imagination of Star Wars fans since 1980. He's obviously going to win. Yep. Absolutely. We have seen Boba Fett. So we know we're going to get Boba Fett. Well, first off, just we get Boba Fett. We've we've seen him. But what's really exciting to me is that we now see that they are going to introduce Boba Fett living, you know, making his way out of the Sarlacc pit and then having a second act um, in this canon. Because that's a part, a really integral part of the Legends uh, canon. I mean, Boba Fett goes on to do a whole ton of things in the Legends canon, but when they tossed all that out, I thought, well, is Boba Fett dead now? Well, we've got our answer. And it's great that we have that. It's also interesting, too, to look at him and where the state he's been in. Is that clearly he's, he didn't just walk out of the Sarlacc pit yesterday. This guy has been living on Tatooine now for a while, and he is heavily... Five years. It, yeah, potentially. And it's one of those things where it's fun to debate that, because, you know, the Sarlacc pit famously takes, like, years to digest you. It's an incredibly painful and pleasant way to die. So, might have been there a while. Who knows? Um, but... He's heavily equipped with sand. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, I'm about to use the racist term. That would be very untoward of me to do my that. My goodness, I, I, I caught myself. You know, I'm learning my privilege. I'm, learn, I'm, I'm learning a better, better deal with this. But we call them Tuscans, not even Raiders. We should call them Tuscans. This is true. They're the Tuscan people. They're the original inhabitants of Tatooine. They fought the Rakatan Empire back thousands of years in the day. They've earned they've earned some respect. But uh, the fact that he's equipped in Tuscan gear with even a Tuscan staff is interesting. That's its own story to unpack, and I'll be curious to see what more we get out of this. In large part because, you know, maybe it suggests again that we're going to return to Tatooine before the series insist- and um, series or season is done, which I'm down with. I'm perfectly fine with Tatooine, like in all other Star Wars media, being the lodestone that everything is built on. But we'll see. I'll be curious to see how they work him in and how we meet him again before this is done. Yeah, me too. Um, and I would like to point out that I thought that, you know, how this episode dealt, and we've kind of talked around the, the subject a little bit, but it, it kind of in conclusion, and how they dealt with the Tuscan Raiders was really, really good mm-hmm. in that it, it gave them a culture, it gave them a creed, it gave them, you know, a value system yeah. and an intellect that we didn't know they had before. And I think that is much, much more interesting than just the mindlessly barbaric quote, sand people that terrorize Obi-Wan and Luke and the, and the like in episode four. This is, this makes for a much more interesting um, story to tell than, than those details were in the, the original episode four new hope. And and as well. And remind me, I'm always iffy on the prequels. Which one was it where Anakin goes in and kills off the entire Tusken Raider tribe because they killed his mom? Or kidnapped his mom. Yeah, um, that's uh, that's the third one. Yeah, Revenge of the Sith. Um, so we get we previously, in, at least on the screen, they've been depicted as savages, as as a threat to the broader community. Which, given that we've mostly been seeing this from the perspective of the more recent inhabitants of Tatooine, the more you know <laughs> proper members of the galaxy, makes sense that we'd get that view. We've had suggestions before in other media, like in some of the video games, like Knights of the Republic, where if you're willing to trade a crate dragon pearl. 
the Tuscans will open up to you, get into their society, and they'll actually tell you their entire history, which is great. I was one of the people who was happy and willing to trade that for the sake of learning out more from them. But to see it now on the screen, to get them effectively rehabilitated, and see that they are a proper people worthy of respect in their own right, it's delightful. And it's nice, too, that we're even getting some um, build even within this show about that. Well, we got some hints of that back in, I think it was Chapter 5, when we were previously on Tatooine, when Mando just calmly negotiates a deal with them, and they don't immediately murder them or everything else. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was a you know, it just shows me that the canon in this story is in good hands because it's it's not just telling the story, you know, at hand, which is Mando and and Baby Yoda. It's also filling out the greater canon in a way that I think is is really uh, responsible. Right. Absolutely. Including the absolutely unquestionable appearance of R5-D4. I'll never hear your doubting of me again. (laughs) <laughs> I'll give you that uh, because you 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 very quickly believed uh, what I told you about Boba Fett, which is true. It is Boba Fett, but I, I do appreciate the the faith in me there. Uh, anything else you want to talk about with Episode One of Season Two? It's a, such a strong start to the second season. It's just a confident start to the second season of where again it's working off those classic Western trips. This is like. We missed Firefly when it went off the air that we wouldn't have a proper space western. We've found it again in Mandalorian, and it's great to have both that and Star Wars going for us at the same time with such skill. And I'm just very curious for where the next step in this journey goes, because Mando had a lead, and that lead is gone. And so where he finds one next, I don't know, but I'm excited to find out. Yeah, and I what I really liked about this, it gave me a lot of comfort, is a lot of times you have a show, you know, a particular season will be lightning in a bottle, right? <laughs> Westworld. Yeah, Westworld season one, great example. It's lightning in a bottle. It doesn't take you long into season two to figure out that season one was lightning in a bottle and they're not getting it back. This episode, right from Jump Street, illustrated to me that they are picking up where they left off, if not stronger, in mm. season two. So it made me really excited for what's to come. Uh, what, what your odd? Uh, I mean, previously last season, every guest star that we met, or at least a lot of the key ones, we got to meet again before the season was done. Do you think we're getting to see Seth Bullock one more time before this season is over? Uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go no, but I am going to go yes. On do we see him before the series is over? I agree. I think we're gonna get back to Tatooine next season. I don't know if we're gonna see it again outside of obviously the next episode, but I think we will. We will return again before we're done. Yeah, I do too. Spencer, well, I enjoyed this. Uh, very exciting to jump back into the world of Mandalorian in season two. And I will be here with you for our review of episode two. Anything else you want to add? I'm a little disappointed to see how much shorter these episodes are getting. I'm now looking at the chart. Episode three is 35 minutes. Come on now. I want more Star Wars. <laughs> it's totally worth it, though. Uh, all right. Well, I enjoyed it, Spencer. And I will talk to you for episode two. Sounds like a plan. See you.